turn with me, please, in your Bibles to Matthew. Again, Matthew 24. Matthew 24. I will read, since all of you were here this morning, and anybody who might be joining us at home probably heard the uh, what I read this morning. I will not go all the way back to where I started out this morning. I will start in verse 15 of chapter 24 and read through verse 35. This is the word of the Lord. Reverently listen to it. <clears throat> Therefore, When you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to get the things out that are in his house. And let him who is in the field not return, not rather turn back to get his cloak. But woe to those who are with child and to those who nurse babes in those days. But pray that your flight may not be in the winter or on a Sabbath, for then there will be a great tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever shall. And unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, Those days shall be cut short. Then, if anyone says to you, Behold, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders, so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Behold, I have told you in advance. If therefore they say to you, Behold, He is in the wilderness. Do not go forth. Or, behold, he is in the inner rooms. Do not believe them. For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. But immediately, after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heavens shall be shaken, and then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory, and he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet And they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. Now learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. Even so, you too, when you see all these things, recognize that he is near, right at the door. Truly I say to you, This generation will not pass away until all things take place. All these things, rather, take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, 
but my words shall not pass away. Amen. Pray with me. Lord, we thank you for your, that you are a speaking God, and that you um, have made us in your image so that we can relate to you as you speak to us. Uh, We can know you and know you better and better uh, through your speech to us. We thank you that you've given us your written word. It is precious. It is most precious. It is the food our souls need. But so too is the preaching of that word which indeed is uh, a preeminent means of grace. Would you please bless the preaching of your word now? Would you please use me, uh, my words, my mind, um, and my studies to be a blessing to your people? And would you please draw us closer uh, to you, our glorious God and Savior? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Children, You know what the Ninth Commandment is? You may or may not know the Ninth Commandment. I'm not sure. You uh, you may not know that it is the Ninth Commandment. You've probably heard the commandment. The commandment is, Thou shalt not bear false witness. You've heard that, right? Thou shalt not bear false witness. You shall not bear false witness. What that means, kids, is that it's a sin to lie. It's wrong to, to tell a lie to somebody. Um, and uh, God is grieved when his little children, be they adult little children or little children children, lie. It's a sin, and it's a serious sin. And t- Christians are not supposed to tell lies, So yet, although we do sometimes, and we need to ask for forgiveness from God and the person we lied to as well. But Christians' children are not only not supposed to tell lies, We are not supposed to believe lies either. We're not supposed to believe lies. In this passage that we're looking at today, this evening, um, there are people that uh, were going to tell lies at the time when Jerusalem's destruction was near at hand. And that they were going to try to lie to people and lead them astray so that It would injure them spiritually and perhaps gravely injure them physically as well. And in this passage, Jesus warns his people, do not believe their lies. So this text, among other things that it teaches us, as you'll see, is that we as believers are not to buy into lies. Which, by the way, and this is kind of an aside but not really, which is why what, what will minimize the chance of believers being deceived or duped into believing false things, especially on spiritual matters, is we need to be students of the Word. We need to be good theologians. We need to know our Bibles and know uh, the Bible's teachings, its doctrines, uh, which is why we emphasize um, catechisms and confessions and why we read them on a regular basis, and why we encourage everyone to memorize at least the Shorter Catechism and to study uh, our documents, knowing that they are secondary standards, but we believe they reflect accurately what the Scriptures teach, and it's important that we know that, so that it minimizes the chances of us um, veering off spiritually or theologically 
uh, into dangerous waters. So this, uh, but that's part of what's going on in this text that we're looking at this evening. Let me re- remind you, review a little bit some of the points that we addressed so far in this chapter. Uh, I mentioned uh, that the disciples wanted to know when they asked Jesus the question that they did, they wanted to know two things. They wanted to know when the destruction that Jesus had spoken of, when there would be no, no stone left upon another, they wanted to know when that destruction was going to occur and what would be the sign that would indicate that this uh, dreaded event was about to take place. They wanted to know that. Uh, they, uh, they also, excuse me, they correctly assumed when they asked their question about the destruction of the temple, um, they correctly assumed that the end of human history would be brought about by Jesus' return, his second coming. I'll reread the question uh, just to remind you. They said, tell us, when will these things, the stone not being left upon another, be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So they correctly assumed that the end of human history would be brought about by Christ's return after he left and came back. Uh, but they incorrectly, as I mentioned this morning, incorrectly assumed that the temple's destruction and Jer- Jerusalem's destruction would occur at that same point in time, at the end of human history. They didn't get that right, although they were making that assumption. And in his answer to their question, Jesus actually addresses two different issues. Because the truth is they asked about, they asked two different questions. Uh, and so he addresses both issues that they brought up in their question. First, he discusses his bodily return to earth in judgment at the end of the ages and the events and phenomena that will both, that both will and will not precede that second coming of his. We talked, um, last week about events that would not be signs of his uh, imminent return to earth in verses 1 through 14. But he also, in the Olivet Discourse, in chapter 24 in particular, speaks about the destruction of Jerusalem and its temple and the sign that would immediately precede that catastrophic catastrophic event. And he does that in this section that we're looking at today, this morning, and now the, the last two points uh, uh, today in this uh, verses 15 through 35. Now this morning, we saw two points. Uh, We looked at the first two points in the four-point sermon. Uh, Those points were first, the sign which uh, would indicate that Jerusalem's destruction was imminent. We we said that that sign was uh, the, uh, well, Jesus said it was the abomination of desolation, which would be standing in the holy place. I made the point that that could either be the uh, Idumeans, whom the Jewish zealots invited or brought into the temple precinct to help defend it against the Roman uh, siege, uh, or, more likely, because of what Luke says, it's a reference to the Roman armies itself, itself with their uh, with their ensigns. Ensigns, I got it. I said I said ensigns this morning. It was corrected. It's not ensigns. It's ensigns, something like that. Anyway, um, at any rate, uh, that's probably more likely what the abomination is: the uh, Roman armies itself. Well, the second point that we looked at this morning. That was not only the sign that would indicate Jerusalem's destruction was imminent, but what Christians were to do when Jerusalem's destruction was imminent. And what they were to do, we were told in verse 16, was to flee away from Jerusalem, um, which would be where it would be natural for people to want to flee, and most of the Jews did, who were not converted to Christianity. Uh, Jesus says, don't flee there, flee to the mountains. 
flee away, flee to the uninhabited uh, portions of um, the land around you uh, is where they were to go. And that was because Jerusalem, rather than being successfully, rather than successfully repelling the Roman armies when they came in 70 AD, it was going to undergo a siege which would produce almost unimaginable suffering for those who endured that siege inside the city of Jerusalem. Uh, but most Christians, as I mentioned this morning, Eusebius told us this, most Christians, if not all of them, that lived in greater uh, Jerusalem and in Judea avoided this horrific um, slaughter and uh, uh, this what happened in, inside the city. They avoided it by heeding these words that Jesus told of the disciples that they, in turn, shared with other Christians over the course of the next 40 years before uh, the Roman army came uh, and God destroyed uh, uh, Jerusalem through that army. That leads us to the last two points uh, uh, from this uh, passage, and they are this. Thirdly, what believers were not to be deceived by when Jerusalem's destruction was imminent. Look at that in just a moment. And then finally, how soon would it be before Jerusalem's destruction was imminent from the vantage point of Jesus and his disciples. Okay, So first, what believers were not to be deceived by when Jerusalem's destruction was imminent. We see this in verses 23 through uh, essentially um, uh, 31, well actually 33. Um, what they were not to be deceived by was by people claiming that the Messiah had returned. Look at verse 23. Then if anyone says to you, Behold, here is the Christ. Christ means Messiah. Behold, here is the Messiah. Or, there he is. Do not believe him. Now what were these people who were going to claim, in, and uh, obviously happened around 70 AD, just prior to the time of the, uh, the Roman uh, siege, or during it perhaps, what were these deceivers claiming about the Messiah? We can glean a little bit of what they were claiming from uh, what we read here in Jesus' words. First thing that we can glean in verse 26 is that few people, this is what they would say, these deceivers, few people other than themselves, the deceivers, were aware that the Messiah had returned to Israel because his coming was largely unseen. This kind of, doesn't, this, doesn't this sound kind of like Gnosticism? The secret knowledge? I have secret knowledge. I know where the Messiah, I know he's come. He, he kind of privately came to me or some of my friends. He didn't come to you, but I can show you where he is. That was what essentially these deceivers were saying, and we get that from verse 26. If therefore they say to you, behold, he is in the wilderness. What's in the wilderness? Nobody. Right? He's out there where nobody saw him. He showed up in the wilderness on some mountain peak in, uh, in Transjordan. If therefore they say to you, behold, he's in the wilderness, don't go forth. Don't go out there and try to find him, because he's not there. And also, he says, or they might say to you, behold, he is in the inner rooms. In other words, he's in a secluded place where, where large people can't see him, see him. And then he says, do not believe them. So these deceivers... Uh, around uh, around the time of Jesus, uh, excuse me, of the of of, of Jerusalem and the, its temple's destruction, just prior to it, this is what they were going to say. Oh, the Messiah is here. It's all right. I know where he is. 
And the second thing they were going to say was these deceivers were going to say, and I can point out where this unnoticed Messiah is that you didn't notice, but I know about. I can point him out to you um, <clears throat> because I know where he's hiding or where he's, where he, you know, where he surreptitiously showed up. Why would people want in this time uh, of, of the Roman siege or just moments, uh, very shortly before it and during it, why would people living in Judea and Jerusalem, why would they be eager to see the Messiah when their enemies were about to attack their capital city and their land? Remember what most Jews in the first century believed. The typical first century Jews' conception of the Messiah was not a biblical one. The first century Messiah, uh, Jews, uh, typical Jews' conception of the Messiah was that he would be a warrior king. He would be a political and a military figure who would deliver the Jewish people from their physical oppressors, which is exactly what Rome was. Right? So such a Messiah, as they conceived him him as, was exactly who they would most want to see as their their Roman enemies are on the verge of or in the midst of besieging them uh, in their capital. They want the Messiah. They They are primed to believe that the Messiah has come if somebody tells them, in other words. Right? Sadly, for them... Such a Messiah was merely a figment of their imaginations. And he wasn't coming. Because he didn't exist. Well, here, in this passage, 23 through 26, Jesus is warning Christians, most of whom were probably Jewish Christians, if not all. Maybe there were occasional Gentile Christian thrown in there who lived in Judea, but most of them would have been Jewish Christians who, who believed on Jesus as their Messiah and Savior and King. But he is warning Christians, don't be duped by such lies. Children, this is what I was saying to you earlier a few moments ago, that not only should Christians not tell lies, but they must not believe lies. And this is what Jesus is saying to his people in 70 AD who lived in, in Judea and near Jerusalem. So, if Christians living in Judea near the time of Jerusalem's destruction would remember these words that Jesus shared with the disciples and they in turn wrote down, which is why we have them right here, and shared with uh, Christians throughout, uh, as, as, the, as the Christianity spread, the, the words of Jesus spread with the, uh, the Christians, as if they remember these words, what Jesus was saying in this Olivet Discourse, they wouldn't be fooled into pinning their hopes of deliverance on a rumor to the effect that the Messiah had returned to rescue them and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, you see. So what does he tell them to prevent them from being duped, from being led astray, and from believing the lies of these deceivers who would have them believe uh, 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 Messiah had the Messiah had returned. Well, what he does is, and we're going to look at the verses here now, this is really important because it helps clear up what's going on in this passage in a way that uh, I just think you'll find as helpful as I found it when I discovered what was going on, um, or realized what was going on. What he does is, 
he tells them this. He says, unlike the rumored, unnoticed coming of the deceiver's imaginary Messiah, that they said, oh, he's here, he's there, he's whatever. Unlike those, uh, that false imaginary Messiah, who is unnoticed by anybody, because he's in the wilderness or in some inner room where he showed up, unlike him, Jesus' own return to earth would be anything but secret. Will be, excuse me, anything but secret. His bodily return now I'm talking about. Jesus' second coming in glory at the end of the age to judge all mankind and to bring in the new heavens and the new earth would be unmistakably, will be unmistakably obvious and visible to all. Nobody's going to miss it. Verses 27 through 28 makes that point. So notice the connection here. He starts in verse, remember I said about what verse 26 said? If therefore they say to you, behold, he's in the wilderness where nobody sees him, don't go forth. Or behold, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe them. Why? The next word in verse 27 is for. That's key, you see. He's explaining why they shouldn't believe people Say, who were saying to them, Jesus showed up and nobody noticed. He came back and nobody noticed. Because, verse 27, for just as the lightning comes forth from the east and flashes even to the west, meaning all the way across the sky, even like that, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. And then this, uh, somewhat cryptic uh, reference to vultures, essentially means the same thing. It's going to be obvious. When you see, when you see vultures flying overhead in East Texas, uh, a dozen of them uh, circling, you know what's happened. There's no doubt what's happened. There's a dead carcass down below that they're, they're heading for. Uh, and that's, again, the point. And so Jesus is saying, when I come back, everybody is going to know. There's going to be no question about what has what is happening when I return. That's the point he is making there. And the parable of the fig tree, found in verses 32 and 33, I'll read that. Now learn from the parable, uh, learn the, wait, wait, hold on a moment here, where am I? Oh, no, no, let me back up before I say that. In verses 29 through 31, which I'll read in just a moment, Christ elaborates on the unmistakable character of his return. So let me read those. 29, but immediately after the tribulation of those days, and by the way, this tribulation, verse 29, is not the tribulation that's spoken of back in verse 21. That tribulation is when Israel, uh, when Jerusalem was being besieged and, and, the, and the results of that besiegement. This tribulation in verse 29 is at the end of the ages, near the end of the ages, uh, as, as the end of the ages approach. Um, and it's not the dispensational one, by the way, either. Uh, but immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken, and then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power, and great glory, and he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together the elect from the four winds uh, from one end of the sky to the other. Those signs mentioned in there, which you're going to 
come subsequently to the tribulation by the way that will come uh, when Satan is released at that, that, little, that little period that's talked about in Revelation 20. That's what the, uh, what's uh, probably being referenced here in terms of that of the tribulation. Um, when those signs appear, uh, then, and they're going to be spectacular, they're going to be scary, um, and I think they're going to be literal. You know this language is from the borrowed from the Old Testament. Uh, there's several places in the Old Testament where this language is used, and it's used as language of judgment, but it doesn't mean literally that those things happened. It's just that God was coming in judgment on some nation, be it the Edomites or the Babylonians or the Jews or whatever. Here, I am convinced it's literal. That at the end of the ages, it's actually going to be literal. And there are going to be signs that are visible, and they're, and they're going to be accurately uh, reflect what, what is written there, which was heretofore figurative when it was used in the Old Testament by the Old Testament prophets to describe judgments, that uh, lesser judgments that came during those time frames. So, the parable, now let me get to the parable of the fig tree, the one recorded in verses 32 and 33. Um, I'll read it. Now learn the, uh, the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and put forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. Even so, you too, when you see these things, and the these things there, I believe, is a reference to the signs that are mentioned in verses 29 through 31. When you see these things, recognize that he is near right at the door. And by the way, Luke, in his account, his version of the Olivet Discourse, the wording is different in Luke's version. He says, recognize, when he, t- he tells, tells the same parable, but Luke says, recognize that the kingdom of God is near. I think that, I think that points to not that what happened in 70 AD, but what will happen at the end of the ages, because it is regularly described as the kingdom of God. Um, Kingdom of God is used in different ways in the kingdom of heaven, but one of the ways it's commonly used is to describe the eternal state. So, which is why I'm interpreting that parable to be a reference to uh, the signs that will come just before Jesus returns. But remember, uh, well, I'll, I'll get to that in a second here. So, so, to kind of gather our thoughts here, if Christians living in Judea, in and around 70 AD, remember what Jesus is saying in this section of the Olivet Discourse, starting in the section that we're looking at, 15 and following, if they remember these things, they're not going to be deceived. They're going to know when to flee, and they're going to know who not to believe, and what not to believe. Because when everybody else is going to want desperately to believe that Messiah has returned to help them against their political enemies, their military enemies. The, the Christians will know, no, that's not true. We need to get out of here. And they did. So, finally, and lastly, I'll review one more time. We've, we've seen this morning the sign which would indicate the Jerusalem's destruction was imminent, the abomination of desolation standing in the holy place. We saw what Christians were to do when uh, Jerusalem's destruction was imminent, namely flee uh, away from Jerusalem and to the, uh, the uninhabited mountainous areas. And then thirdly, we just looked at the point what believers were not to be deceived by when Jerusalem's destruction was imminent, namely somebody telling them, hey, the Christ has arrived, but you can't, you haven't seen him because 
He's in a remote place. Let me go, let me go and show him to you. And we'll, we'll get him to help us. And then finally, and lastly, this text speaks of how soon would it be before Jerusalem's destruction was imminent? How soon from the point of time when Jesus spoke the words to his disciples in, in uh, 30 AD? So, how soon would it be? The answer is found in verse 34. Therefore I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. That word has been disputed by those who uh, don't like the apparent conclusion that the word points to. Uh, and his people have tried to dismiss this, uh, well-meaning folks, but whose theology differs from our own, who tried to dismiss this and says, this means race, or this doesn't mean generation the way it normally means generation. I got news. It does mean generation as it was regularly used in the Bible and in the, the day uh, uh, the first century. And that is a 40-day period, uh, or not day, a 40-year period was a generation. 40 years. That was a generation. I won't give you all the background there, but uh, a lot of ink has been spilled about it, and it's very clear to me uh, and other people who I who I greatly respect as well. But it's clear to me, just looking at the material, that it means generation. That's it means forty years. That's what it means. And so Jesus is saying there, truly I say to you, within forty years, forty years will not pass away until all these things take place. Jesus spoke the words in thirty A.D. Uh, uh, Jerusalem was destroyed, as was the temple in seventy A.D. Do the math, right? The God of the Bible keeps his promises and his threatenings. Promises to his, gracious promises to his children, threatenings uh, that he makes upon those who do not repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. If uh, any of you here or some folks that might be at home listening to us have not fled to Jesus Christ as your home only hope, not part of your hope, but your only hope of being forgiven and going to heaven rather than going to hell, which we all deserve. If you do not do that, God is threatening to destroy you for eternity, and he will. And you, as well as me, all of us, deserve that, but those who don't flee to Christ will get it. So if you have not trusted in Jesus as your Savior and Lord, and you can't trust him just to save you from hell, but not live for him, he is the Lord of those whom he saves. You need to trust him that way and trust only in him. I want to, Something should be noted here about verse 34 and what it's saying. Um, and that is that the things that Jesus is saying will occur within that 40-year generational time frame, uh, uh, the, the, the things that are mentioned in the Olivet Discourse uh, prior to this verse that we've looked at in the past couple of weeks, the things that Jesus says are going to occur does not include the Jesus' discussion of his second coming in glory, which begins in verse 27 and ends in verse 33. That's not, he is, he is referring to what precedes that 
not because, and I'll explain, I'll, actually I'll let David Silversides, I mentioned to you all this morning, uh, Scotch-Irish minister who has gone to be with the Lord, um, uh, pre- preached a series of sermons that, uh, 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 that, I, that I listened to, uh, and uh, anyway, uh, sound exegete, but here's what he said about it, and I hope you can follow it. Uh, it's not particularly eloquent, but it, it describes very well why this is parenthetical, this section uh, about the second coming of Christ. Silver sides. The problem, quote-unquote, created by this generation, the phrase this generation in verse 34, is solved by treating the brief description of Christ's second coming in verses 27 to 33 as a parenthesis in which Jesus' unmistakable, very public appearance uh, meaning in the second coming, is contrasted with the private appearances of the false Christs. So, when Jesus says uh, that all these things will be fulfilled in this generation, 40-year time frame, he means all the things that are not a sign of the end, that, that, that all, excuse me, he means all the things that are not a sign of the end, meaning the end of the ages, the apostles' generation will see. Got that? The event that is described in verses 27 through 32, the the end brought about by Jesus' second coming, is not among the events that Jesus is saying will be fulfilled in the apostles' generation. What verse 34 is guaranteeing is that the apostles would see the one-off event of the destruction of the city of Jerusalem and then some of the apostles, he says the apostles, but he meant some of the apostles, would see the one-off event of the destruction of the city of Jerusalem, and in addition, false Christs, persecution, nation rising against nation, famines, earthquakes, plagues, etc. They'll see that. And it includes all that. When he says all these things will take place, they'll see all those things, which aren't signs of the end, uh, the end of the ages, but are things that they will see and witness in their own lifetime, as well as the destruction of Jerusalem, and it too isn't a sign of the end of the ages. They'll see all those things. Uh, I'm still in the middle of his quote here. Uh, uh, and by the way, it's a modified quote. It's a, I, I had to clean up some of what he said and uh, when I... When I type this up, but it's more or less what Silverside said. So let me read that last sentence again. What thirty-four is, verse thirty-four is guaranteeing is the apostles would see, uh, see the one-off event of the destruction of the city of Jerusalem, and in addition, false Christ persecutions, nations rising against nation, famines, and earthquakes. With the exception of the destruction of Jerusalem, all believers living within the period between the first and second comings of Christ would see these things as well. Now, you and I are not going to see the destruction of Jerusalem that's already happened. But we see and read about regularly uh, famines, earthquakes, uh, nations warring against each other. It's been happening for the last 2,000, well, for the last 6,000 years, right? Not, sign, not, not, pater- not, not um, eschatologically significant signs. We're going to see it. And uh, Silversides makes that point. Uh, but we are not to construe these phenomena as signs of the end, meaning uh, of the end of the ages, end quote. It's a parenthesis when Jesus, remember verse 27 begins with the word for, it's explanatory. So he's kind of going off to say this is why 
This is why you don't believe that somebody says, hey, Jesus, uh, Jesus has returned, just nobody knows it yet except me. It, it's explanatory. Uh, it's, it's a, you know, it's fairly, um, uh, elaborate expl- explanation that c- between verses 27 and, uh, 33, but that's all it is. I would, ma- I would merely add to what Silverside said that the signs described in verses 29 and 30 will one day signal the imminent bodily return of Christ. They will. And it's a return which you and I almost certainly, as I mentioned this morning, will not see in our lifetime. You might disagree with me. That's fine. But I'm convinced of that. I'm convinced verse 14 in particular is uh, key to uh, coming to that conclusion that we looked at last week. A few closing thoughts. First of all, the destruction of Jerusalem and of the temple and of much of Judea in the first century by the Romans in 70 AD, it signaled rather the end of the strictly Jewish character of the covenant community prior to that point in time, in other words, of the church. The church ceased to be a predominantly Jewish phenomenon after this event. Um, and that's one of the things, this was kind of the capstone to that transformation of the visible church and how it looked and its ethnic character. It went from being a largely Jewish church to becoming, uh, in the Old Testament, a Jewish church to becoming uh, quickly, very quickly, a largely Gentile church. Although there were Jews in, and still are, of course, in the church. Secondly, and this is important because it'll help you understand some verses that uh, need to be understood. Uh, uh, there is a sense in which Jesus did come in 70 AD to Jerusalem. There is a sense in which that is true. Why do I say that? I'll read three verses that make this point. Uh, and for the sake of time, I'm not going to turn to them. I'm just going to read them off the page that I... One of them, and you write this down so you can look at them more yourself, is Matthew chapter 10, verse 23. Uh, Matthew 26, verse 34. And James 5, verses 8 and 9. Uh, there are a couple of other passages too, but those will, those will work. Let me read Matthew 10, 23. Uh, Jesus says... Uh, but whenever they persecute you in this city, and I believe he's referring here to the 70, I think it is, or the 12. No, it's the 12. He's speaking to the 12 when he's sending them out. Whenever they persecute you in this city, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you, the, the, the apostles, you shall not finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. I think that's a reference to 70 A.D. 20, Matthew 26:64, Jesus speaking to Caiaphas in his trial before the Sanhedrin. Jesus said, "You have said, you Caiaphas, you have said it yourself." And Caiaphas had just uh, said, essentially, uh, inadvertently acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah. He said, "You have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter, you remember he's talking to Caiaphas." you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. I think that may be a reference to what happened in 70 AD uh, 2, 
that's certainly very uh, like uh, uh, very possible. Although it's a little bit problematic, uh, and you got to be a little tentative about that. Another last verse I'll give you is James chapter five, verses eight through nine. Uh, we read there: "You too, be patient, strengthen your hearts." And he says, "For the coming of the Lord is at hand." James was a Jew. He was speaking, writing to Jews. And he was writing early on. It's one of the earliest books of the New Testament. He's writing to the Jewish church, in other words. And he says, But you, uh, be patient, strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not complain, brethren, against one another, that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. I think that's pretty clear. Jesus came spiritually, not bodily, but came spiritually in 70 AD as judge to judge his old covenant people for their covenant breaking and infidelity to him and to God. Um, And uh, so there is a sense in which Jesus came, but it was not the coming, if I can put it that way. But he is coming again, bodily, in glory, with great power, and great glory with the holy angels and, and uh, in flaming fire. It's all going to happen that way. And he is going to right all wrongs, praise the Lord for it. And he is going to have his way with his enemies. So if you're one of those enemies, stop being an enemy of God. And repent and believe in Jesus as your only hope so that he will be your friend and you will look forward to his second coming if for some reason it were to happen in your lifetime rather than dread it. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the fact that you are a God who is just. And while that sometimes sounds funny to say, we're thankful that you're just. Uh, because <clears throat> we know that uh, justice, those of us who understand uh, your, your word, justice is the last thing we want for ourselves because we are sinners. And yet, it was just of you to be gracious of, uh, to us because you punished Jesus in our stead uh, for our crimes uh, when you imputed our sin and its guilt to him. And so we are grateful that you are a just God. And we are also grateful that you will, uh, you will punish all sin uh, one day that has not been punished at the cross. Uh, and we thank you uh, that you, are, you are, are that way. You wouldn't be worthy of worship if you weren't. And so we rejoice in that. We do pray, Lord, that many people now in our families, in our, in our, uh, in our workplaces, in our community, in our country, in our world, who are now walking in darkness and who are now shaking their fists metaphorically at you, uh, we ask that you would bring many, many souls to Christ and spare them your judgment in the final day. We pray that you would use us toward that end, Lord, that we would be eager and zealous uh, and determined to share our faith whenever you give us a reasonable opportunity to do so. And would you please bring lost souls to Christ through our witness. We thank you for this passage, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.
receive now God's blessing. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete, without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, faithful as he who calls you, and he also will bring that to pass. Amen.